Shall we start in? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to send your spirit into our hearts to understand the mystery of baptism and confirmation. We ask for Mary's intercession. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Anybody have any questions about anything? Go. I do. It's not uh, related to sacraments. Uh huh. Why this cathedral is a basilica? What's that? Why this cathedral is a basilica? Ah, um, that's just a, um, an honor given by. Um, yeah. So I don't know the. So some cathedrals have a special um, honor of being yeah, given the title basilica. Uh, I don't know. Um, you have to ask that to Monsignor Breyer. I'm sure he'll be able to give a good answer. Uh huh. Right. We can't form an, an image in our mind. Yeah. I mean, so that's we're praying to a. If we pray to. So if in the, in the Mass, all the prayers are actually directed to God the Father through Jesus in the Holy Spirit. And that can be difficult for the imagination because we can't form a good imagination. There are works, I mean, maybe there are great works of art. Um, Michelangelo depicts God the Father in Sistine Chapel. Um, that could be something. But um, just simply knowing that you're speaking to a person, God the Father, who um, is one with the Son and the Holy Spirit, and um, yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's God the Father, creation of Adam. That could be something that, um, but ultimately we have to know that God transcends any imagination that we could form, and that's why it's helpful, right? Jesus took on flesh, and so it's easier for us for that reason to pray to Jesus, but. In the public prayer of the church, prayers are ultimately directed to Jesus' Father, right, as he prayed on earth, our Father. Yeah, and likewise, same difficulty, right? So the Holy Spirit, it's harder to form an imagination. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, he's, so the, he proceeds as love. He's the spirit of union, of communion, of reconciliation, of bringing together, of forgiveness, etc. So that's how we can... Maybe think of him or imagine, right? Any other questions? Ah, something I should say is this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. So that's the beginning of the season of Lent. And so Lent is a preparation of the whole church, really for you. In other words, the origin of Lent was that the whole church would accompany catechumens. So the catechumens are those who weren't yet baptized, who were preparing to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. And, and so this period of Lent came about as 40 days to fast um, for you and for the church to fast on your behalf. And also it's a preparation for everyone for entering more deeply into, the, into conversion. All right? And so the, let me, a little bit, what's required? So what's required um, during Lent is um, kind of the minimum requirement 
is fasting from meat, so abstaining from meat on Ash Wednesday, so this coming Wednesday, the Fridays and the Fridays during Lent. Um, and then um, also abstaining from, um, so eating like half of what you normally would on those two days, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So you can have a regular meal on Ash Wednesday, um, but then the other two meals be like half or, or less, something like that, or however, however you want to do it. And if somebody's sick or elderly, they are exempt from having to, to fast or even abstain from, from meat, right, for the, you know, somebody's sick, all right? Um, in addition, Lent is a, a time in which we should intensify um, practices that bring us, and um, so it's basically three practices, um, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, right? So those are the three Lenten practices, and it's broader than what you might think. So prayer um, can be all different kinds of prayer. It could be reading scripture. It could be spending some time before the Blessed Sacrament in church. It could be um, praying morning and evening prayer with, um, as part of the, what we call the um, divine liturgy or um, divine office. It could be praying however you want. Um, the almsgiving are all the different ways that we can do service um, and whatever that might mean. So there are physical works of mercy, that's you know, helping the poor, um, taking, you know, what, hospitality, um, and there are spiritual works of mercy, and spiritual works of mercy can be um, um, help, helping those who have spiritual needs, um, listening to people, um, putting up with people who make us um, uh, annoyed, and um, making them feel wanted and et cetera. I know there are tons of ways to practice spiritual works of mercy and everybody can, um, can find creative ways to do them. Fantastic, fantastic, yeah. So, um, because it, the rosary takes us through the life of Jesus, right? From Mary's eyes as it were. And in adoration, you've, if you're before the Blessed Sacrament, you've got Jesus there. And so you can be praying about his life um, in front of him. So that, that's a beautiful practice. But again, in adoration, every, people will find different things more helpful. Generally, a prayer like the rosary is the most helpful because it gives you something um, right there. It involves vocal prayer and mental prayer. Right? So that's, and then it's something you can do with others or do by yourself. Um, you can simply um, read scripture in adoration or you can... Um, Ask Jesus things and just kind of be quiet, um, helping him to, allowing him to help us think about them and process them. And likewise, asking the Holy Spirit to help. Right? So those are all different things we can do in adoration. Great. And then with regard to fasting, it doesn't, so the word is um, refraining from eating, but there are all different kinds of fasting. So fasting doesn't have to be giving up chocolate or something like that. It might be giving up something I do on the internet that distracts from my life. It might be curtailing um, certain things that I do during the year that maybe curtailing it will allow me to focus more on, uh, on my spiritual life, right? So yeah, it could be um, social media. Some people give up Facebook or something like that. Anyway, that's something personal for everyone to decide what would be most helpful for them, okay? Questions on that? 
This Ash Wednesday, anyone, so even those of you who aren't baptized, you can go to Mass, I mean, not receive communion, but you can receive the ashes, right? Simply, it's what we call a sacramental, and it doesn't require baptism to receive a sacramental, right? So you can all go, and simply, it's a sign that we're from dust that, of original sin, that, um, and we're going to return to the dust, right? So that's what the priest will say as he puts the ashes, all right, questions on that? Uh-huh. Do they put the ashes on at the same time? No, there'll be two different lines, right? So you can go up the ashes line, I think it's earlier in the Mass, and then uh, not go up during communion. It's not a day of obligation, but it's a great practice to go to Ash Wednesday Mass. Okay. Great. Any other practical questions about, about Lent? A lot of parishes do fish fries to help people on Fridays, right, find a, a meat alternative. Um, and that can be a, a, a way of meeting people as well. Okay. All right, let's go on now on. To, so our topic for today is um, baptism and confirmation, precisely what you're going to be receiving in the Easter Vigil. Right, and so we divide. So last time I think we spoke about the seven sacraments and how they correspond to human needs. And so baptism corresponds to birth and confirmation, growth to maturity. And, and together with the Eucharist, those are the three sacraments that, um, that you'll receive at the Easter Vigil if you haven't yet been baptized. Right? If you've already been baptized, then confirmation and the Eucharist. And so they form a unity, and we call them the sacraments of Christian initiation. Right? So initiation means um, entering into the life of the church. And so those three together um, make up initiation. And so they're, they're complementary. And baptism is the entrance. It's the foundation. It's the start of a new life. It washes away the sins of one's past life and configures one to Christ and makes one a member of the church. That's, that's baptism. Confirmation is giving of the spirit to lead you to maturity. Right? And the two go together. Right? In other words, um, Children don't usually receive them together. They receive baptism at, right, at, um, shortly after birth and confirmation in, in the U.S. at a late, you know, mid-teens. Um, but in the first thousand years of the life of the church, they were always, they were received together generally, if possible. Um, and that continues to be the practice in the East. But in any case, and you two, you and the, um, who haven't yet been baptized, will receive them together. And then the Eucharist is like the crown. So of all the sacraments, the queen or the glory is the Eucharist. Because the other sacraments, um, Jesus gives us the grace that he won for us in Calvary. Right? So all sacraments give grace. But in the Eucharist alone, Jesus himself is present and we receive Jesus into our bodies. And the Mass also makes present his sacrifice on Calvary. So of all the sacraments, the Eucharist is, we could say, immeasurably um, the greatest. Right? And so all the others have the Eucharist as their end. Right? And so that's why in the Easter Vigil, um, first there'll be baptism, so first there'll be lots of readings, and then baptism, and then confirmation, and then the Eucharist. Okay? Yeah, there are nine readings from the Old Testament at the Easter Vigil. So be prepared for a long Mass on that um, Easter Vigil Mass. So it might be two hours or two and a half hours. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
So if you're inviting people, warn them. This, this is a long mass. Beautiful mass, worth it. Um, and you want it, right? You want it to be long so, because it's a milestone. It's, it's a gigantic event of your life. And so it makes sense that it doesn't just get over in, in an hour. Okay. All right, so Christian initiation is these three sacraments. So let's start with um, baptism. Yep. That's right. It'll be at 8.30, I think it usually is. I forget. It's between 8, 8.30 or 9, probably 8.30. And it'll start outside the church with a bonfire um, in the little plaza in front of the church. And that's represent. And so um, you'll gather around the bonfire, and that's when the, from that bonfire they'll light the Easter candle. Um, and then the church will be totally dark, or not not totally, so that there aren't accidents, but pretty dark. And um, the candle, the Easter candle, will process into the church, and there'll be a chant, the light of Christ. Right? And the idea is that faith in Christ's resurrection um, is the foundation of the church. Right? And at first, it was only Mary who believed, and then the apostles who found the empty, right, the, um, empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, and then Jesus appeared. Right, to, and so the, the Easter vigil the candle going into the church is manifesting, right? That that's the source of our faith. And then from that candle, we all will have a candle that will light, right? And that's a symbol of the faith of each one is coming from the faith of the apostles in Christ's resurrection. So that's how it'll begin. And then there'll be um, lots of, there's supposed to be nine readings from the Old Testament. Often some are skipped and then Psalms corresponding to them. And then there'll be the... um, the gl- so then the lights will come on full and there'll be the organ. So during Lent, there's, um, in Mass, certain things won't be, so you don't sing Alleluia during Lent. Um, and generally, you don't, you don't have the Gloria. Um, and so at the Easter Vigil, there'll be a really loud Gloria with bells and lights and, uh, and to celebrate the resurrection. That's it. Or in the mindset of, yeah, of, Holy, of Good Friday, right? That, um, in other words, we're in, we're, all of Lent is a preparation for what's sometimes called the triduum. Triduum is just Latin for the three days. And the three days being, um, well, we'll start with Thursday night, where he has the Last Supper, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And so um, it'd be a preparation for his death, right? And his, and then... Right, and so when he um, rises on, on Easter, right, we'll hear that again, the Alleluia, we'll hear the Gloria, and it'll be glorious. Right? And so it's like we're fasting from liturgical beauty. And even, an interesting thing is, even the statues will get covered, and even a cru- crucifixes will be covered in purple cloth in the two weeks before, um, before Easter. You can, you can. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done that. But that can be a good practice, yeah. All right. Um, great, so let's look at now at baptism. So the word itself, baptism, means immersion, right? Because in the early church, 
baptism was by immersion. And what that meant is you were in a baptismal pool that maybe went up to your waist, and you would get dunked into the pool um, like, um, with your head, and um, it would be in, uh, more than just having some water poured on your head as we would do it today. So you'll get some water put on your head. But in the early church, it, it was a, a fuller immersion. And that's because Judaism had a right of immersion. So baptism existed in Judaism, but with a different meaning. So Jewish baptism was something that if you touched a corpse or you know, something that made you ritually unclean, um, you needed to have a ritual bath. And so in, in Israel, there were baptismal fonts for that. But the difference was that that was just for ritual purity, not for moral purification, and that you received many times. Right? So um, after childbirth, after a woman's period, there was a ritual purification in Judaism. So it wasn't a one-time thing um, as baptism is. Right? But nevertheless, it was a figure of Christian baptism. If they had to take like an offering to the altar, and I'm speaking in like Judaism, uh -huh, yeah. back in the, so the the baptism cured them for that, but what prepared them for that? That's right. But maybe if they wanted to send a personal prayer, would they be ritualistically unclean if they haven't had the uh, if they haven't received the the bath? I mean, I think it would be something necessary for going to the temple, to the right? Temple. For the yeah. Okay, but personally, that wouldn't affect. I don't think so. But that's, so it, um, there were lots of figures of baptism in Judaism. So that would be like visually the closest, a ritual bath, um, but again, with a, um, not, um, not a one-time thing. And also not administered, kind of you did it yourself. You, and today in, in St. Louis, the Orthodox Jewish community has a, um, they call it a mikvah, a place where one receives that ritual bath. John the Baptist? Uh -huh. Right. So John the Baptist did a new thing, right? So he, um, he had received a, a mission to do a, a, a baptism for repentance. So that was something different. In other words, John's baptism wasn't just for having touched a corpse. It was to express one's repentance for sin in general, the sin of one's life, to prepare for the Messiah, right, who was in their midst. That was the meaning of John's baptism. And that was like approximate preparation for Christian baptism because Jesus shows up, right? So um, this, many of the, the people of Israel came to John's baptism. It was in the River Jordan. And um, so we know that they were Roman you know, uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, soldiers, etc., who came, and, um, and Jesus came too, right? And John says, you know, I need to be baptized by you, but you're... Um, but Jesus says, no, no, um, he, made, he insisted that John baptize him. So Jesus received John's baptism, and that was the occasion in which he got manifested to Israel because John then testified, gave witness, that the, the Spirit descended on him and the voice of the Father was heard, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right, so that was Jesus' baptism. And, and that, we could say, is the beginning of Christian baptism. Because what happened at Jesus' baptism will happen at yours, except not visibly. In other words, what happened there is um, Jesus already was the beloved son, right? But a voice was heard from the Father, 
you are my beloved son. And then the spirit descended on him. In every baptism, that happens invisibly. And the person baptized gets adopted as son of God. And again, I can say this. It's easy to say it, you know, I'm a son of God. But to really think of it, think of what people do, you know, for an aristocratic title of nobility, or at least used to do, right? It was a big deal to be the son of the king of France or, you know, or of count, you know, whatever. Um, all right, we live in a society that's not. But such a simple thing, baptism, and I become a son of whom? The creator of the universe. And it's the great equalizer, right? Everyone who gets baptized gets a dignity that is infinitely greater than any human dignity can possibly be. And this is why everyone in the church has a fundamental dignity that's equal. Son of God. Son or daughter of God. Right? And so, again, the, the dangers we kind of take it for granted, right? Baptism, um, but it, yeah, it's... It's something that we can never sufficiently um, appreciate, all right? And then the second thing is the Holy Spirit descends, right? So as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, that too happens in every baptism. Unless um, every baptism that we receive with the right dispositions. And I'll come back to that, all right? Um, so that was the preparation for it. And so after Jesus was baptized, his disciples started baptizing. And so you actually had two baptisms going on in the same River Jordan. You had John doing John's baptism of repentance, and you had Jesus' disciples a little, up, I don't know, upstream or downstream from John in the same River Jordan giving Christian baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? And yeah, so Jesus instituted baptism by being baptized. And what the Father's Church speak of it as sanctifying the waters for all future times. So Jesus receiving baptism gave to water a power that it didn't have before to cleanse us from sin and to give the Spirit. Uh-huh. So just you were going to ask this question. It's like John the Baptist is baptizing the baptism of repentance. Mm -hmm. So then a person who is Jewish could do a baptism of repentance. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Right. But so in the, at the time of, of Jesus and John the Baptist, um, all the disciples of Jesus um, were Jewish and didn't understand their being a disciple of Jesus as any break from, from Judaism. Right? And that continues to be the case in, for 30 years, more or less, right? until the, the destruction of the temple later. And, and the two communities divided. But I guess what I'm asking is if you get baptized by John the Baptist at the time. At the time, you still needed, yeah, you still needed the other one. And we can see this if you read John's gospel. There's, um, you should all read chapter three of John's gospel. So it's an encounter of one of the um, leading, of one, perhaps the wealthiest man in Jerusalem, a leading Pharisee on the Sanhedrin, who comes to Jesus at night. His name is Nicodemus, right? And he comes to Jesus and says, you know, I think you're a teacher from God because you do these mighty deeds. And, and so he had a high vision of Jesus, but not quite high enough. And he didn't want to publicly identify as a disciple of Jesus because of his reputation. And so Jesus, the first thing that Jesus responds to him is, unless 
you are baptized in, from, um, from water and the Spirit, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. Right? So he's basically saying, you want to come as a kind of secret disciple. Well, the group of disciples is marked by a public thing, a public event, which is baptism. Right? And that's precisely what we're going to celebrate at the Easter Vigil. In other words, to be a Christian, you have to be initiated in a public, not in a private way. And it means sharing something that's shared equally by every member of the church, right? That dignity of being son or daughter of God. And yeah, so those who got baptized by John needed to get a second baptism because it's different. And John said it, right? John said, I was sent to baptize with water but there's one coming after me, right? I'm not worthy to tie his sandals who will baptize with water and the Holy Spirit, right? And that's proper to God, right? John can't, you know, institute something in which he gives the Spirit because he, he's not the giver of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit from all eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son. Jesus is the giver of the Spirit as God, right? And so that's why he can institute a sacrament like baptism in which not just water is poured on us, but as water is poured, the Spirit is given. But there's no belief that Jesus gave them baptism in the water. He could have if John, it just wasn't his mission, right? So John the Baptist, if he had become a disciple like the apostles, sure, he would have had the same power um, to give Christian baptism. But it seems that that wasn't John's mission was to point out Jesus. Right? So John was, we can think of him as the last prophet of Israel, the last and greatest, because the other prophets had the task of, like Isaiah, um, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, he will be named Emmanuel, 700 years in the future. Right? But John's task was to say, this one who I've just baptized right here, behold the Lamb of God. Right? And he told his disciples, and they started, they stopped following John, and they started following Jesus. And so there's a, a double meaning to the right. So the right, the way you'll experience is water poured on your head, right? But in some other places, there might be an immersion. Um, but there's two meanings to it, and we tend to miss the second. The first, easier to see, is it's representing a washing, right? So water's poured on the head to symbolize a washing of the heart, right? So um, as water washes the body, baptism washes the heart from the sins of one's past life. Right? That's the, the first meaning. The second meaning, which is harder to see when it's water poured on your head, but is maybe easier to see if you're immersed into a, a, full, you know, a full body immersion, is that it also represents death, being immersed in water, like drowning, being immersed in a tomb, as it were, and then coming out of the waters, rising into new life. In other words, Part of the meaning of every baptism is that it's participating mysteriously in Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Romans chapter 6. He says, you've been baptized, right? He's writing to the Christians in Rome. They've all been baptized. So if you've been baptized, you died. Right? And they're thinking, what? Um, you died unto the old man with Christ. In other words, sharing somehow in Christ's passion and death, but as Christ rose on the third day, you um, have risen from the baptismal font 
a new person. Now, I may not feel the difference. It's not about feeling. It's about believing. Right? When I got baptized, 29, 33 years ago, yeah, I didn't feel anything different. But I was different. How do I know that? By faith. Right? Um, and so it involves a, a death to the old man and a sharing in the power of Christ's resurrection. And that power isn't just for that one day. In other words, we get bap baptism happens only once. Its power lasts for the whole of our life. So even if I maybe didn't experience it, maybe I wasn't properly prepared when I got baptized. I got baptized in the Anglican Church. I hadn't gone through the RCA yet. I wasn't properly prepared. But its power isn't lost because it continues to work all through our life. It's something we can call on every day, that having, been, having died with Jesus and rising with him unto new life, it's something that we live out in the little things in ordinary life. Okay? Yeah, so the one who's baptized is immersed into the death of Christ and rises with him as a new creature. So that's what we don't see so much when we don't do baptism by immersion, but you need to... Think, okay? Uh-huh. Um, it can't, sure, it does. Both are permitted. And it just simply, it's local custom. Um, it's up to the pastor. Okay. Um, baptism was prefigured in lots of ways in the Old Testament. Just let me say this. Well, you'll hear this at the Easter Vigil. So at the Easter Vigil, and after the, all of the readings, we'll move over to the baptismal font, and the archbishop will bless the water. And as he blesses the water of the baptismal font, he'll um, speak about these figures. And the first figure is a creation. Um, in the very first verses of the Bible, um, the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, over the chaos, as it were, over the waters. And that already is a kind of sign of baptism. The spirit and the waters are, right, we see the water in baptism. You don't see the spirit, but that's the one who's active. Um, simpler um, than the Ark of Noah is another kind of type of baptism. Um, a little bit negative because, um, so it was a purify, the Ark, the Great Flood, we can understand as a kind of purification of mankind in which sinful humanity was um, washed away in the flood and a, a renewed humanity was preserved in the Ark of Noah, right? Noah and his family. Um, and so in, in a sense, it's a figure of baptism which doesn't kill anybody or wipe away, it, but simply wipes away sins. Right? So in that sense, um, it's a figure. And the, the most important figure is the crossing of the Red Sea. So leading um, the people of um, the Israelites out of Egypt, God led them in a strange way, right? And so he, he could have led them directly into the promised land. But he led them, and that would have been across by the, um, I guess the current border, if you've been following the news, between Gaza and Egypt um, by the Mediterranean. But God led them south of this such that there wasn't a direct passage. There was a body of water there, the Red Sea. And so it was a weird thing for God to lead them out of Egypt into a, apparently a dead end. Right? And then they got pursued by Pharaoh and his chariots, and Pharaoh thought it was great. He's got them cornered. There, there's this Red Sea there, and they're stuck. And so, but the miracle was, and God told Moses, right, if you've seen the, the 
Ten Commandments. Um, so God, um, tell, uh, Moses putting down his staff, the waters part. Right, so a grand miracle, but it's a miracle pointing forward to an event that we understand today that what would, wouldn't have been understood for 1,300 years. Right? So as the people of Israel went through the waters, right, on dry ground as it were, and then Pharaoh tried to pursue them with his chariots through the same channel that Moses had opened up, right? And so what does Moses do? Israelites get to the other side. He lowers his staff again. The waters wash away Pharaoh and his chariots, right? And they die. That's the story. And um, it's a type. It's a type. Pharaoh represents Satan and his chariots, the power that Satan has over us through the sins of our past life, right? And so as... Pharaoh and his chariots get washed away, so the sins of our past life get washed away. And, and at the end of the story, it's mentioned, and they, Pharaoh and his chariots never returned, right, to bother them again. The sins of our past life are dead. I can commit new ones, tragically, right, because we're still free, but those old ones, they died, right? They got washed away. So that's a beautiful type. But what happens then? It's not the end of the story, right? They get to the other side of the Red Sea, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. That's a type of our Christian life after baptism, right? So it's not as if, don't expect, ah, I'm getting baptized. I'll be immune from all temptation after my baptism, right? I'll have a perfect, easy spiritual life afterwards. No, that's not what happened in the desert, right? Immediately, they got tempted, right? They were longing for the flesh pots of Egypt and, and grumbling and complaining because they were in this desert for 40 years with... Uh, nothing to eat except manna, um, which was a miracle, uh, which represents the Eucharist, by the way. Right? So they, um, they were fed by miraculous food. And so after baptism, there'll be our whole Christian life, right? but we'll be fed by miraculous food better infinitely than the manna, which is the Eucharist. All right, there's a, another type. is After the, the 40 years, they then had another miracle when they crossed the Jordan. Um, the Ark of the Covenant went into the Jordan River and the waters parted like they had in the Red Sea before. Again, another type of, of baptism. And maybe the most important type is um, circumcision. So um, all Jews, all Jewish boys on the eighth day receive circumcision by which they're incorporated into the covenant. All right, in terms of a rite, it's totally different, right? It's not a washing, it's a painful cutting away of the flesh. But it involved being marked as a member of the Jewish people um, for life, right? In other words, it gave an indelible mark. Baptism marks us likewise, but not with a visible fleshly mark, um, like the cutting away of the foreskin, but with an invisible mark. I think we I mentioned it last time, and we call it character, meaning stamp. It's an invisible stamp of Jesus on our souls. And so circumcision is a kind of type of that. Okay? Questions on that? Girls didn't have that type, but girls likewise would have gotten incorporated into the covenant on the eighth day by receiving a name. And okay. Yeah, so who anybody can receive baptism, right? But one has to believe in the gospel and resolve to live as Jesus taught. So those are the two. Um, so anyone who believes and resolves to live as Jesus has taught us can be baptized, right? And 
just not just can be, but should be. And the church welcomes with open arms everyone. And again, this is novel, right? Israel wasn't like that. Israel was, I mean, yes, there could be converts to Israel. You would have to get circumcised if you were a man. Um, but um, Israel was basically a covenant with one people, right? But right from the beginning, baptism is open to every human being. And um, we find the first kind of mass baptism was on the day of Pentecost. So it's 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion or after Easter, Easter Sunday. Um, and so we, we're told on that day, 3,000 were baptized, um, and we should also think confirmed. They were baptized and received the Spirit. The, so what is the essential rite? So I think we've already said it. It's pouring water on the head or on the whole body, right, if it's immersion, but at least on the head, um, in the, while invoking the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there'll be three pours, right? And it'll go like this. I baptize you in the name of the Father, pour or immersion, in the name of the Son, pouring or immersion, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's super simple. Right? It's the simplest right. And again, that's kind of, it's the most momentous. You become a son or daughter of God, but it's the simplest ceremony with the simplest matter, water, available everywhere. Yeah, so you'll be, you'll go. With babies, you hold them? Right, yeah. So you'll go over to the font, um, and your head will lean over the font, and the archbishop will pour water on your head here at, at the cathedral, right? But again, other places can do it with, with full immersion. Should I bring my own towel? What's that? The, Should I bring my own towel? Or? No, that'll be provided for you, yeah. There'll be a towel, and you'll get a white robe, and that's a sign of both death and rebirth. So it's Jesus, when he was in the tomb, he was wrapped in a shroud, but it's also when he rose, he rose gloriously. And so that baptismal robe, in some ways, representing both things, death, but even more, resurrection, new life. Would church baptize um, children or couples that are not married? Can't, sure, it's, it's independent of that. In other words, they, what you want is an assurance that the child will be raised in the, in the Christian faith. Right? So there has to be somebody who will catechize the child but, but it's not about the parents, it's about the baby, right? In other words, it's precisely about receiving um, the adoption of being a son or daughter of God, right? So there just has to be some assurance that they'll be um, catechized. Right, so who can receive it? Anyone not yet baptized, right? If you've already been baptized, you can't be baptized again because you're being marked for life. But if there's reasonable doubt about whether you were rightly baptized in the past, then there can be a conditional baptism. Right, but that's something to speak out with Father Popus. All right, baptism. So it's traditional in the church to baptize um, infants as well as adults who convert, like, like here. Um, and the reason for that is because infants come into the world without sanctifying grace. And that's precisely the dogma of original sin. That's what original sin means, most importantly, is that um, we come into this world 
um, with human nature, but without sharing in God's nature. Whereas when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created with human nature, but also with the gift of um, sharing in God's nature and a friendship with God. And we see that friendship in the fact that they walked with God in the cool of the day before their sin, right? And then they lost that intimacy after their sin. So Adam and Eve were created in grace. We're conceived in our mother's womb without grace. There's only one exception, right? That was Mary and obviously Jesus. But every other human being is conceived without grace. And so we need to get it back. And why? So yes, um, as adults, we can get it back. But why wait on a baby? Right? So a lot of times people think, um, it's not right to baptize infants because they should be deciding for themselves. I thought you've probably heard that. Um, in other words, they should be making, they should be getting baptized when they themselves, um, well, do we do that? I, I didn't ask our baby if he wanted to be a member of the Feingold family. And think, you know, what an insult that would be to not accept somebody into your family who's your child until they, you know, grow to be 10 or something and, and say, I want to be a Feingold. I mean, that... Absurd. And, but that baptism is um, receiving them into God's family and into the family of the church. And if, I'm, if the parents are in that family, um, that's their family too, right? And so baptizing a baby, it seems to me, is simply a no-brainer. It's what your very maternal and paternal instincts are leading you to do. You want them to be received into your full family. Right? We don't ask our kids if they want to be Americans either. Right? They just get American citizenship, and nobody's asked, and nobody complains. Afterwards, right, they, can, um, you know, they can leave, but, um, but we give... Does that make sense? And it's not about... So sometimes people also say, well, how can they make a profession of faith? Baptism gives faith. How, now, infants can't receive it in the sense that they can make acts of faith. That requires you know, development. And they need to get to the age of reason to make an act of faith. But baptism gives them um, a share of God's life and faith, hope, and charity in a seed, as it were. It's a seed that will become acts when they get to the right age, right? when they get to the age of reason. Technical term is it gives them faith as a kind of habit but one that they can't use yet until they get to the age of reason. Um, and so they're baptized in the faith of the church, right? And somebody else answers for them, right? The godparents. Questions on that? So it makes sense to baptize babies because they get changed by the baptism. They get adopted as sons and daughters of God. They get incorporated into the church, and they actually get gifts that remain in them and that would be grace, faith, hope, and charity. And, and character, right? They're stamped as we are. Any question about infant baptism? Sometimes people are coming from a Baptist background or Presbyterian. And we know the early church did this. Um, the early church, whole families were baptized, we're told. We're not given the age of what that meant, whole families being baptized. Um, and we see it in the, already in the second century, the rite of baptism was first the infants and then the adults at the Easter Vigil. Okay, what is required of someone to be baptized? 
um, a profession. So the two requirements are faith and repentance from the sins that we're aware of in conscience of our past life, right? And that's, it, these are required for receiving every sacrament, right? So any sacrament, whatever it is, the Eucharist, I need to believe that Jesus is present in the Eucharist, and I need to be repentant of sins of my past life. To receive confession, I need to believe that Jesus is forgiving me and that I need to be repentant for the sins of my past life. Right? So that's the general um, disposition for receiving every, any sacrament. Right? And we see this Jesus again and again saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? So that's kind of the, the disposition for entering into um, to being a disciple of Jesus. Question on that? And what repentance means is to be sorry, right, that I sinned against God, and to resolve um, to avoid grave sins in the future. Right? I'm not repentant if I haven't resolved to try to avoid it. It doesn't mean I will, in fact, avoid them. Right? I can have true repentance and then later fall into sin and then rise out of it again. That happens to most people. But um, I have to resolve um, to want to, to try to avoid it. Questions on that? So those are the two, two dispositions for baptism. If somebody receives baptism without these two, it still will be valid. So I'm going to make a distinction here. You, you got baptized. Right? Let's suppose somebody is doing this just to please somebody else. Right? I don't really believe this. I don't care. I'm not repentant. But I don't know. My parents want me to be baptized, so I'm going to get baptized. Or my girlfriend or who, whatever it is. Um, it'll be valid because water got poured in your head, the right words were said, you intended to do it, but if you didn't have faith and repentance, it won't be fruitful right away. Fruitful means actually gives grace and transforms. But it will become fruitful as soon as the obstacle of whatever it is, lack of faith or lack of repentance, gets taken away. Right? So it'll come to life as soon as I get rightly disposed. And the, the point here is sacraments aren't magic. In other words, it's something magical happens independent of my dispositions. I mean, there is no magic. But um, that's why, so this is something that, yes, it's from above. It's a real power. It's not just a symbol in my mind, but it's a power that doesn't work um, overriding our free will, right? but empowers our desire for repentance, for union with God. And it'll be fruitful if I have faith and repentance. If I have more faith and more repentance, it'll be more fruitful. And there's no limit to how fruitful it can be. It can always become still more fruitful in our lives. Mm -hmm. No, it's great. In baptism, Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So it's typically the task of the godparents, not the parents, right? And that's kind of the privilege of a godparent, is to hold the baby while the baby's getting baptized. Okay. Yeah, so you'll, your, god, your sponsor will put their hand on your, on your shoulder as a kind of sign of solidarity of the whole church. Your sponsor representing others in your life that will help support you. And... It's, and they're pledging their support.
Yeah, and so the whole community shares in that responsibility. Okay, who can do it? So the, here we make a distinction, the ordinary minister and an extraordinary minister. So the ordinary minister of baptism is a bishop, and so you'll actually have a bishop, the archbishop, and those of you who haven't yet been baptized. Um, but it could be any priest or a deacon in the Latin rite. In the Eastern rite, bishop or priest. Um, but in an emergency, anyone can baptize. So let's suppose um, in a hospital, um, might be a newborn baby, is in danger, proximate danger of death. Anyone can baptize um, a nurse in the hospital. They don't have to be Catholic. Um, they don't have to be Christian. Anybody can do it, as long, and all they have to do is do the right thing, pouring water, right, three times, um, saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and intending to do whatever Catholics do, what, what the church does, even if they don't believe anything. So anybody can be a minister in an emergency. And that's the reason for that is because baptism is the most necessary sacrament, because it's the foundation of all the others. Okay, so you don't have to worry about, um, you know, did I, was it the right minister who baptized me? And so those of you who have been baptized in the Protestant church, all right, you didn't have a priest or deacon, right? You didn't have a bishop, priest, or deacon because Protestant minister isn't recognized normally. They don't acknowledge holy orders and they don't have the sacrament of holy orders. But it still would be equally valid, right? Because anybody can baptize. Yeah, in danger of death, Right? Um, a parent can baptize a child, say, in the bathtub right? or, or grandma or something like that. But what you don't want to do is have grandma baptize a baby in a bathtub when there's no emergency, simply because the parents don't intend to baptize the child. Right? Because that's their, it's, it's their responsibility, the parents. Right? So you don't want to go over their heads unless there's proximate danger of death. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Yes, as the ordinary means, but no in the sense of you know, absolutely necessary. So it's not absolutely necessary in the sense that somebody who couldn't be baptized, so that, I mean, there are tons of, most of the world and the majority of human beings in the world have never heard of Jesus Christ and his church. Billions of people, perhaps, living in Asia and, um, and parts of Africa. And so we don't want to say that through no fault of their own, they um, all go to hell. Right? That would not, and the, the reason is because God wants all to be saved. Right? And so that's why the catechism says here, baptism is necessary for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed, right, to you, and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament as you have had. Right? So once you come to see, ah, it's God's will that I be baptized, then it would be um, very foolish and it would be sinful not to go through with it if I see that this is God's will. All right? But if I have no way of knowing that because no one ever, uh, I couldn't um, find out about um, Christ and his church, then God's not going to, that won't be a sin in me. Does that make sense? So it is possible to be saved. So is it possible to be saved without baptism? And so the catechism here says, Christ died for every human being. And therefore, Christ also died for those who never heard about. Let me give another example. The Americas weren't evangelized until the 16th century. Um, so that's when, take Mexico. Mexico had a, a large population, 
of tens of millions of um, people, and um, no one ever heard of Christ because no missionary had ever come there. Um, and it was in the 16th century that you first had some Franciscans going, and then you had the miracle of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and 10 million Mexicans got baptized within that decade, right? But clearly, those who lived before that time weren't responsible for not being baptized, right? Because nobody had ever... So the Catholic says, since Christ died for the salvation of all, those can be saved without baptism who die for the faith. All right, that's a small group. That would be um, infants who are killed out of hatred for Christ. All right. Again, that's pretty rare. It can happen, though. Um, and an example would be the holy innocents. The holy innocents were those infants who lived in um, Bethlehem who Herod had killed trying to kill Jesus. And so we um, acknowledge them as martyrs in, in heaven. So that's called baptism of blood. But again, that's pretty rare. More common, far more common, are those who, um, moved by grace, sincerely seek God and strive to do His will, but they either haven't been able to be baptized or haven't been able to find out about it. Um, and so, yes, they can be saved, not simply by ignorance, but because grace has been given to them and they're seeking to live according to their conscience um, through the aid of God's grace. And if they knew that Jesus had, in fact, um, that Jesus was God-made man and had um, made baptism the entry into the church, they would want it. That's, that's the idea. That's called baptism of desire. And it may be that there are millions of people who have received baptism of desire, or, or millions of millions. Uh, we don't know. And the number, um, and we entrust them right, to the mercy of God. And the same thing goes for what about babies? So it can happen. I mean, there are lots of miscarriages. No baby in the womb has the possibility of being baptized, right? So do we want to say that all miscarried children go to hell? Certainly not, right? And so we entrust them to the mercy of God and trust that God can give them the grace that he gives ordinarily through baptism without the sacrament of baptism, all right? So the church entrusts children who die without baptism to the mercy of God. Questions on that? It's more than that, but it looked like, like that. In other words, it's God, God's grace is invisible. And so um, nobody can be saved without his grace. But I can't, let me give an example. My dad died without baptism, right? He was a lifelong atheist. And he, towards the end of his life, he became more interested in spiritual things, um, especially after my mom died. And so he was, had an openness, but not so much that he asked you know, for baptism, and um, do I despair of his salvation? No. Is it because, I, yes, I think he, he's my dad. I think he was a good person. Obviously, every person has flaws and sins, and he had those too. But um, his salvation wouldn't, wouldn't just be because he was a good person, but because grace was working on him and um, leading him to s repentance of some kind and some kind of faith according to what he was given to know, which will be, do you see what I'm saying? If we simply say that people can be saved for being a good person, that would be actually a heresy called Pelagianism. Pelagianism is the idea that we can be saved by um, our own moral strength. 
And so, no, it's got to be the grace of God. But yes, can the grace of God be given to this person like my dad who was never baptized? Yes. Can I know that with certainty? No. Can I hope for it? Yes. Does that? But it'll look like that to us. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. That's right. It was fantastic question. Thank you for asking. I've actually, I've got a, I, I have a, I teach baptism and confirmation introduction sacraments. I have a whole chapter on that of 50 pages going through the whole details about limbo. But the short answer, I'm bad at short answers, but the, uh, the shortest I can make this is that, yes, that was a theological theory. That was very common. Um, but the catechism of the Catholic Church doesn't mention it at all and says something else, and that is what's written up here. The church in her liturgy entrusts children who die without baptism to the mercy of God. And is that, um, is that something should, that should leave me um, in grave doubt about their salvation? Is, that's like asking, how merciful is God? And what's the right answer? All, all infinitely, all merciful. And so that, so John Paul II has a beautiful document a paragraph where he speaks to mothers who've had an abortion. So this is in his document on, against abortion called uh, The Gospel of Life. But he's addressing women who've aborted their own children, and he says to them, do not despair about the fate of your children, but rather with sure hope entrust them to the mercy of God. So not just with hope, but sure hope. Sure, not, not the certainty of faith. So what we can't say is every you know, baby whether they're baptized or not, is who dies goes straight to heaven. I don't know that um, as a dogma of faith. Does that make sense? But I can have sure hope that that's the case because of the mercy and love of God. So that's what the catechism teaches. So yeah, the catechism doesn't mention limbo. It was a respected theory in the day, but I think it was insufficiently taking into account God's universal salvific will. All right? Yeah, so um, famous theologians like Thomas Aquinas were um, authors of the theory of limbo. And I'm, I love Thomas Aquinas, but that doesn't mean that he's right on that point. Okay. Yeah, so in questions like this, we want to follow the official teaching of the church, and that's precisely what's given in the catechism. And in the funeral, so there's a, if that happens, right, if, if a, a mother has, whether it's a miscarriage or a child who dies after birth but before baptism, there's a, um, funeral rites um, that are slightly different than for a baptized child, but which entrust the prayers, entrust the baby to the mercy of God. Right? And that's a, a very healing thing for parents who've lost a child without baptism. Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking. Theologians can still hold that about limbo, right? But it would, it would be pastorally very imprudent to not give to the faithful what the catechism teaches. 
What are the effects of baptism? So baptism takes away original sin. What does that mean? It means that it takes away the lack of grace that we're born with. Right? That's the, in other words, it, so if you take away a negative, that's giving a positive. So it takes away original sin, all personal sins, and all punishment due to the sins of our past life. If I'm repentant, right? It makes the baptized person a participant in the divine life of the Trinity through sanctifying grace. That's the biggest thing, right? That's the positive that's being given. And again, it's easy to say the word, but to really take in what that means, nobody can. To share in the life of God, how can I, a human being, share in the life of the Trinity? Well, we can, but I can't explain very well how. It is the moment of justification. In other words, it, the grace of justification incorporates one into Christ and his church. It provides one a, a share in the priesthood of Christ and provides the basis of communion with all Christians. Right? So all Christians share in baptism. So our separated brothers and sisters, um, of Protestants of all kinds, and certainly Eastern Orthodox, we all share baptism. With Eastern Orthodox, we share all seven sacraments. But with Protestants, we share at least baptism. Okay? I'll explain more about that share in the priesthood of Christ in a minute. It bestows the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Hopefully one already has them, right, by way of desire. So you in this class who haven't yet been baptized, you should already have faith, hope, and charity by desiring baptism and receiving that in anticipation. But when you actually get baptized, you'll get an increase of faith, hope, and charity. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll be marked by an indelible seal. In other words, the, the effects of baptism are gigantic. But again, the more you desire it, the more grace you'll receive. If I just take it as you know, a ritual, nothing serious, I'll receive far less than if I'm desiring it. Okay, and you take a new name, again, as a sign of um, a saint's name. Um, let's look now at confirmation. I don't have enough time, but I got 12 minutes. Um, so confirmation, all of you, I assume, will receive confirmation, and it's no less of importance than baptism. So it's a complementary sacrament. The two go together. It's like two sides of the same coin. Baptism and washed away sins, and confirmation, and gives you a grace moving you to Christian maturity. That is moving you to holiness. It's not as if everyone who's confirmed is immediately holy, but it's giving us a spiritual power to lead to that. And by holiness, I mean living Christ's law and living the commandment of love in our daily life. Right? That's, holiness isn't something extraordinary, but it's living the ordinary things with, it, with love, right? with charity. All right, so... Confirmation has a huge place. It, too, was prefigured in the Old Covenant in anointings. So in the Old Covenant, um, prophets, well, maybe the most kings, um, priests, and prophets were anointed. It's easiest to see the kings. So King Saul was anointed by Samuel by Samuel pouring olive oil over his head. And Saul received the Holy Spirit at that moment. Same thing happened later with King David. Saul went to the family of so his father Jesse, there were eight sons. God said, not this one, not that one, not that one. Finally, the youngest, um, David, that one. Samuel pours olive oil on his head. He receives the Spirit. Right? So that's the type of um, confirmation in the Old Testament. Also, the high priest got anointed. So Moses anointed Aaron. 
and um, Elijah the prophet anointed his successor, Elisha. And so confirmation, because it was received by kings, prophets, and priests, gives gives us a share in Christ's kingship, Christ's prophetic mission, and Christ's priesthood. As we said, that's already true of baptism, but it's especially confirmation that's making us share in Christ's three, threefold mission, king, prophet, priest. What does that look like? Kingship here means service, right? Christ was king, not by you know, receiving glory, and, but by serving everyone. And so Christian kingship means a mission to serve in charity our neighbor and to rightly order. So kingship is right ordering, and I gotta start with myself. So to be a king means that I order myself and that I order human relations with others. I order work and and the the good use of time, et cetera. So that's, again, that kingship is for everyone. And, And prophecy is by doing that, that proclaims the faith to others. In other words, our principal prophecy is gonna be through our life but sometimes also words, right? Speaking about the faith to others. And then priesthood, I'll talk more about that, but the priesthood is offering the events of our life with Christ in the Eucharist as a kind of sacrifice. And the idea is all the events of ordinary life are things that we can offer, right? What what does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifices to God to win blessings. All of us, through baptism and confirmation, are given a mission of offering, not you know, bulls and rams like in ancient Israel, not directly the body of Christ, I mean, indirectly, yes, but our, the acts of our own life is what we principally offer with Christ. Right? So the ministerial priest um, makes Christ present in the altar. He offers him with his lips. We offer him with our hearts, and we offer our lives with him. And I'll talk more about that when we do the Eucharist next week. Right, but confirmation is giving us that task. And in, we can sum it up saying confirmation gives a mission to be a co-builder of Christ's church. And you might say, well, that's, that's a pretty tall order. That's right. right? So confirmation gives a, a far more glorious mission than any other on earth. Right? It gives us a share in Christ's mission to build up his church. But the humble part is we build up his church in ordinary life, in our own place, in our relations with our loved ones, right, and whoever we work with. Okay, names for this. Confirmation, in the East it's called chrismation. That's because you'll, so what will happen? The archbishop will um, anoint your forehead with chrism. Chrism is olive oil mixed with balsam, which is perfume. So it's kind of perfumed olive oil that gets consecrated or blessed by the bishop in Holy Week, there's a special chrism mass in which the oils are presented on the altar and the archbishop blesses them. And I'll tell you more about that when we get close to that. And all of you can, that's open to the public if you're free. It's usually during a weekday morning though, during Holy Week. So that's called chrism. And so chrismation is the Eastern name because you get anointed with chrism on the forehead. The Latin name is confirmation and it means strengthening. So strengthening of um, a virtue of grace in our hearts, strengthening what you got at baptism. In your case, it'll, well, those of you who are being baptized, they'll happen one right after the other. But some of you have been baptized as children or years ago, and this will be a strengthening 
of that baptismal grace. Okay? All right, so the essential rite is being anointed with this sacred chrism um, by the laying on of hands of the... So the minister, which in your case will be the archbishop, um, will um, lay on his hand, and the laying on hand could simply be his anointing with his thumb on your forehead. Right? And it's representing two or maybe three things. The laying on of hands, which is also in ordination, right, where a priest um, has the bishop, bishop lays hands on a priest, to, well, on uh, um, someone to, who's becoming a priest, that's a sign of the passing on of authority. In this case, spiritual authority, right, not political authority. And in confirmation, likewise, there's a passing on of an authority. It's an authority to be a co-builder of Christ's church. And that's why the ordinary minister is the bishop. Right? He's the head of the local church, and he's the one empowering you, as it were, to be his fellow builder of Christ's church. Right? And so that's the meaning of the laying on of hands. But the anointing is the sign of the spirit being given. Right? So the olive oil represents the spirit, right? The spirit that when Jesus was baptized, right, the dove came down and hovered over him. And the olive oil is representing that in your case. And with the sacraments, here's the, the principle is this. What they represent is what they do. Right? So if it represents the spirit sanctifying us, that sanctification is really happening. As long as I'm receiving it fruitfully, and I'll be receiving it fruitfully if I'm receiving it with faith and repentance. Okay? Somebody who re receives... So there are tons of teenagers who receive confirmation, and some of them probably receive it without faith or repentance, in which case they're being validly confirmed, but not yet fruitfully. Just the same as I spoke about earlier with baptism, right? It'll become fruitful as soon as the obstacle of lack of faith or lack of repentance is taken away. So they don't need to get confirmed again, right? Or just as you can't get baptized again, right? So confirmation is only once in a lifetime, and it leaves a seal, just like baptism, that's indelible or eternal, right? And that's why you can't receive it again. Questions on that? And the words that you'll hear are, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the archbishop, first he'll say your confirmation name, um, whatever it is, and then be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's really simple, just like baptism. Right? It takes you know, less than a minute to be confirmed, but again, it marks you um, for life and gives you a grace for life. So the effect of confirmation is a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, not just in that moment, in that moment, but for the whole of your life. Right? And the best representation of this is what happened at Pentecost. So this is in Acts. So here's the homework. If you aren't familiar with Acts chapter 2, make sure you read Acts chapter 2, especially before the Easter Vigil, because that's the sign, what happened then. So what happened on Acts 2, it was the... Um, Jew so there's a Jewish feast called Pentecost, which is, commemorates the giving of the Torah um, by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it came 50 days after they crossed the Red Sea. So that's why Pentecost is um, Greek for 50. And it's because it was celebrated 50 days after the Jewish Passover. All right. Easter and Passover more or less coincide. And so Jewish Pentecost and Christian Pentecost likewise coincide. And so it was on that Jewish Pentecost after Easter that um, the disciples were praying in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Eucharist. 
and a wind came, a mighty wind and flames of fire settled on top of each of the apostles and gave them um, the power to speak in languages that they didn't know. Right? So they, they were pilgrims, because it was a pilgrimage feast in Israel. They were Jewish pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean who spoke different languages, and the apostles spoke in different languages to them. They didn't know, you know, whatever, Latin or, or whatever language, um, Arabic, but they um, spoke in that. And that was a, so that was a miraculous sign. And it was a sign of what the church is today. Right? So today, the church, without a miracle, speaks Arabic. Right? There are tons of Christians in um, the Holy Land that um, um, celebrate Mass in Arabic, in Latin, in all the different languages. So in, in over 100 languages, the Mass is celebrated today. And so Pentecost was a sign of... Um, the opposite of Babel, right? So at the Tower of Babel, it was the idea was making a monument you know, that would higher than God, and the result was the um, division of languages. Right? So that's in, in Genesis chapter 10. Pentecost is the opposite. It's now the church speaking all languages is gathering all peoples into one, and that one is the Catholic Church. Right? And so Pentecost being... Um, and so what happened to the apostles is they got transformed. Up until that time, they were afraid, right? And so they locked themselves into the upper room, right? And Jesus on Easter Sunday had to go through the locked door, right? He just passed through the door. So we're told that um, whereas on Pentecost, they get transformed and have the courage to announce the gospel. So that's the sign of what Pentecost, of what confirmation does for those who receive it. It gives a spirit of fortitude, of courage, of understanding, of wisdom, so those are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And baptism already gives them, but confirmation strengthens them. And together, I know I'm running out of time, but um, yeah, so great. It gives us that mission, sorry. Um, yeah, share in Christ's threefold mission, kingly, prophetic, and priestly. And um, it gives the seven gifts of the Spirit so we can carry out that mission. The fact is none of us can carry out, um, just even take the kingly. Kingly mission is service, right? Serving, um, doing acts of mercy. How do I know what are the acts of mercy that will actually help somebody? Or how to help, or who to help out of all the possible people? Um, we need, so there's a gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of counsel. And the gift of counsel helps us, it's, um, to direct us to what I don't know and can't know. What are the right words? Or even, let's suppose somebody suffers um, a loss. One of my students had his father died last week of a heart attack, totally unexpectedly. What do I say, right? I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows. And so this is why it's beautiful to have the practice of praying to the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to show us what he um, wants us to do. What are the right words to say here? Um, what's the way to help? What's the way to announce the gospel to this person? What's the right thing to do in a conflict, etc.? Right? And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we associate with the sacrament of confirmation. And they're gifts for our whole life. Right? We need these gifts throughout our life. And the hope is the more we grow in the Christian life, the more intimacy we get with the Spirit who speaks in our interior, in our heart. But if you don't pray you won't be aware of it, right? So in order to cultivate the gift of the Spirit, 
we need to spend time in prayer every day, right? Some silent time so that the Spirit can, can speak. All right? So confirmation gives those gifts, but again, we, call, we make them fruitful through our whole life. Questions on that? And any question you can bring next time. All right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. May we come to love and appreciate them evermore through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.